0: This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios and our homes in Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. A Dane County judge heard arguments today over whether subpoenas issued to state's Elections Administration Agency and its administrator are enforceable. It's all a part of the GOP review of the 2020 election, being led by former State Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman and some GOP legislators. Gableman is seeking to compel testimony from Wisconsin Elections Administrator Megan Wolf, And Wolf, meanwhile, argues that the subpoenas are not valid. It's now up to Dane County Judge Rhonda Lanford, who says she'll decide on or before January 10th.
1: A package of GOP bills that would regulate electric vehicles in Wisconsin are making their way through the state legislature, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. One bill would expand the sale of electricity beyond regulated utilities, another bill will allow electric vehicle manufacturers to sell their products directly rather than through a third dealer, and a third bill would introduce flexibility to the state's charging infrastructure. Environmental advocates take issue with one provision that would effectively prohibit the use of solar-powered electric charging stations. The bills are currently in committee.
0: Sean Barnes, Madison's top cop, is the subject of a complaint filed this month in the city's Civil Rights Department. Channel 3000 reports that city officials are mum about the details of the complaint as an investigation is ongoing. Barnes was sworn in as Madison's police chief in February.
1: Milwaukee has a new mayor, at least for now. Cavalier Johnson was sworn in as acting mayor this morning at a ceremony. He is the Milwaukee council president and became mayor automatically following the resignation of Tom Barrett yesterday. Barrett is leaving his post to become U.S. ambassador to Luxembourg. A special mayoral election will coincide with the February 15th primary and the April 5th spring election. Johnson is running this spring to complete Barrett's mayoral term. He faces seven other candidates and may, many, may, many more may file paperwork in the next two weeks. If elected, he will be a, a Milwaukee's first elected black mayor. The city's last black mayor was Marvin Pratt, who was also an acting mayor. He would later lose to Tom Barrett in a 2004 mayoral race.
0: The state health department is preparing to receive antiviral pills that have been shown to treat moderate to mild cases of COVID-19. The Wisconsin Department of Health Services says that that limited supplies are expected in the coming weeks. The two pills, one from Pfizer and one from Merck, were just approved by the FDA for emergency use. In trials, Pfizer's Paxlovid reduced hospitalizations and deaths by 88% when taken within five days, reports NPR. Now, that pill was approved by the FDA yesterday. Meanwhile, Merck's pill called, <sighs> let's see if we can say this now, molnupiravir, molnupiravir, appears less effective. Now that has a final clinical study that finds about 30% reduction in hospitalizations and deaths. Merck's pill was approved by the FDA earlier today. The pills will require a prescription and health officials say that pills are not a replacement for vaccinations.
1: Madison bus service will be decreased the next two days over the Christmas holiday. Tomorrow, the bus system will follow weekday schedules and service will end at 6 p.m. On Saturday, the bus system will follow holiday schedules and all standing paratransit rides will be canceled. For more information, head to cityofmadison.com news or call customer service during business hours at 608-266-4466
0: and one of Madison's largest events, is looking to make its return in 2022. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that BratFest is aiming to come back to Madison over Memorial Day weekend next year. The festival has canceled the official BratFest events over the last two years due to the COVID pandemic. The event was held virtually in 2020, and there was a Build Your Own BratFest earlier this year. Organizers for the event say they will follow all public health orders and recommendations that will be applicable when they hold the event, which will feature music by Joe Nichols and 38 Special on the grand stage. Before the pandemic, the event would see over 150,000 people attend. And now on to today's top stories.
1: As more cases of the Omicron variant are confirmed across the state, and Wisconsinites begin their holidays, the county health department is warning everyone to get tested before they travel. WORT producer Nate Wiggehout has the details.
2: As the Omicron variant continues to spread throughout the state, city and county officials are advising folks who are traveling for the holidays to get tested beforehand. The new variant has become the nation's most dominant strain of COVID after less than a month from when it was first detected in the country. On Monday, Public Health Madison and Dane County announced that almost 150 people had tested positive for the Omicron variant, a rapid rise compared to just three people last Thursday. There were over 5,000 confirmed COVID cases across the state yesterday, bringing the state's total number of positive cases to over 950,000. Additionally, 46 people died from the virus, yesterday, bringing the state to a total of 9,862 deaths from the virus. Here in Dane County yesterday, there were 452 new confirmed cases of COVID-19 with two new reported deaths. Pharmacies across the Madison area are struggling to keep up with the demand for the rapid at-home COVID tests. Out of the 10 pharmacies WORT called today, only one had at-home tests left in stock. Federal help may be on the way after the holidays. President Joe Biden announced earlier this week his plan to send 500 million free at-home tests to Americans. The Biden administration says that they intend to start mailing them next month to those who sign up online. Public Health Madison and Dane County have also said that they have increased the hours for COVID tests at their South Madison office, adding some additional hours on Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Appointments are required for the city-county clinic on Park Street, which is open to Tomorrow from 8 a.m. to noon, but closed on Saturday. WORT tried to make an appointment to get tested online through the City County Health Department. The first available spot was next Tuesday. When we checked 10 minutes later, one spot had opened up for Friday morning. If you are willing to wait until after Christmas to get a COVID test, you can also request an at-home testing kit from the Wisconsin Department of Health Services, or DHS. This test is not a rapid test, like other take-home tests, and must be mailed to a lab the day the test is taken. The test must also be taken in the presence of a medical professional, which is done over Zoom. After the test is sent, your results will be emailed to you within three days. Meanwhile, 61.7% of Wisconsinites have received at least one dose of the vaccine, and 80.2% of residents in Dane County have received their first shot as well. Public Health Madison and Dane County say that getting vaccinated remains the best way to protect yourself from the virus. Although it's too late to receive the full benefits from the vaccine by Christmas, getting vaccinated can still offer some protection and is vital to stopping the spread of the Omicron variant. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wegehock.
0: Congress has missed its year-end deadline to pass the roughly $2 trillion Build Back Better legislation. While Democrats say they'll take another stab at it at the new year, that may come too late for some Wisconsin families who were depending on the bill to extend the expanded child tax credit. Jonah Chester of Wisconsin News Connection has the details.
3: Wisconsin families may have received their last child tax credit payment for a while, as Congress has missed its year-end deadline to pass President Joe Biden's Build Back Better framework. The roughly $2 trillion package would have reauthorized the expanded child tax credit through 2022. Parents received their last credit on December 15th, and Timothy Smeeding, professor of public affairs and economics at UW-Madison, says to get the rest of the aid, they'll need to file their income tax returns for 2021.
4: So there's still... Another fifteen or $1,800, depending on how old the child is, that will come to them um, once they file their taxes this next spring.
3: Through the program, parents received monthly payments that varied based on a child's age. Half of that money was held back to be reimbursed after parents file their income taxes. According to U.S. Treasury data, 603,000 payments were made to Wisconsinites in November, totaling roughly $272 million. In order to pass Build Back Better, Democrats will need to woo West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who torpedoed the legislation by pulling back his vote over the weekend. Smeeting says it's likely Dems will jettison some of the more expensive provisions to win back Manchin's vote. He adds if Congress fails to reach a deal soon, it could be a serious financial blow to Wisconsin families.
4: I mean, that's going to be devastating to the families who've come to rely on it if it ends the next year.
3: The Washington Post reports Manchin's counterproposal for Build Back Better excludes the expanded child tax credit. If Congress passes the bill in January with the expanded credit intact, the White House has proposed doubling monthly payment amounts in February to make up for the lost month. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org.
1: It's now 6.17 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
0: Well, we may not be having a white Christmas, but winter in Wisconsin always means snow and snow means salt on the roads. But after the snow melts, all that salt has to go somewhere. And that somewhere in Madison is our lakes. WORT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with Hillary Dugan, assistant professor at the Center for Limnology at UW-Madison, about the issue.
2: As winter slowly approaches, the city will begin to use more and more salt on Madison's roads to keep them from getting too slick. With me today is Hilary Dugan, assistant professor at the Center of Limnology at UW-Madison, to talk about how that salt ends up in our lakes. Hillary, thank you for talking with me today.
5: Yeah, happy to be here.
2: So starting things off, I know we haven't used too much of it yet, but how does the salt end up in our lakes?
5: Yeah, it's a great question. And you're right, it's been a really dry year. So the lakes are actually benefiting from that in a number of ways. But in terms of salt, um, we have to remember that all salt that we put down in the environment, and for the most part, we can think about that as road salt, is going to end up, you know, it stays in the environment, no one's going around picking up that road salt. So when it interacts with snow, uh, it dissolves, it ends up where the water ends up. So that's going to be either into our lakes, into our streams, or into our groundwater. Um, so it's you know that salt's not being removed from the environment once we put it down.
2: What happens to the water in these lakes as more and more salt is put into them?
5: Yeah. So usually we talk about sort of lake water quality having some kind of mass balance. You know, there's some mass of a pollutant going in, and there's a mass of pollutant going out. Um, and so what we're seeing in Madison and in a lot of urban Wisconsin lakes and lakes in the Midwest is that there's more salt going in than can be flushed downstream. So over time that salinity increases. Um, and so the to make the problem better, we need to put less salt in so that it can flush downstream and sort of flush out. Um, and so what we're seeing is that, you know, every winter when we start salting roads, we're just putting such a large quantity of salt on our roadways that it's sort of overwhelming the natural capacity for lakes and rivers to kind of flush themselves out.
2: And for the things that live in those lakes, the fish and the small plants, how does it affect them?
5: Yeah, it affects them differently. Um, You know, we can think of it kind of like humans. You know, there's some humans that seemingly can eat a lot of salt. There's others that, you know, have salt-restricted diets because of certain health conditions and, when we think about aquatic ecology and just a range of organisms that live in lakes and streams, some have a lot higher tolerance than others. Um, you know, so things like freshwater mussels, we know are really intolerant. Um, there's been a lot of interesting work done on things like zooplankton, looking at how their community dynamics change as we put salt in. Fishes tend to have a slightly higher tolerance. They have more sort of sophisticated um, ways to regulate their internal ion balance. Uh, And so there's sort of a, it's a, each species is going to react differently. Um, There might also be some evolution at play where, you know, we've been salting lakes for a long time. Some of the quicker lived species might actually be evolving higher salt tolerances. So it's kind of runs the gamut. Um, What I will say is that invasive species, so like the non-native Wisconsin species tend to be more generalist. They tend to be better adapted to living in a broad range of environments. And so if anything, as we start increasing salinity in uh, Wisconsin freshwater environments, we're just going to be doing a disservice to any native species that are really adapted to really low salinities.
2: So we've been salting our roads for quite some time now here in the upper Midwest in general. When did we first start to notice the negative effects that that salt had on our lakes?
5: Yeah, we've been salting roads since, you know... uh, War II, uh, for a while, the state of Wisconsin had a, you know, a clear roads policy, making sure that, you know, every, cl- uh, every road was clear of snow and ice. Um, and people started to sound the alarm pretty early on. You know, there was a big environmental movement, um, you know, through the 70s, and people were talking about it then. You know, it's, it's obvious when you watch it happening that we're just dumping, you know, millions of tons of salt into environments that historically had no salt. So this goes way back. Um, I think there's been a resurgence, late, resurgence lately, thinking about, um, you know, better ways of dealing with this. I mean, we, even though the alarm was sounded decades ago, there, there really wasn't any change in practices. And in fact, just with bigger populations, more roads, there's only been more salt use. Um, and I don't think it's been until recently that um, sort of at a, at a higher level, so thinking about, you know, the state of Wisconsin, um, you know thinking about ways of salting roads that uses a lot less salt while maintaining public safety. And so I think that's both an environmental push, but also an economic push. Salt is getting expensive. We spend a lot of money de-icing roads every winter. And so there's definitely sort of a happy medium where we can save money, help the environment, and still maintain safety.
2: I wanted to ask Is there another solution to both keeping our lakes free from salt as well as keeping our roads from getting too slick? Are there other communities that you know of that are looking for solutions to this problem?
5: Yeah, so that's kind sort of a, you know, a two, I think there's, there's two ways to answer that question. The first is just in terms of our approach to winter and to snow and ice. And so there are many countries in the world that have climates similar to ours that don't use road salt um but they sort of have an approach that you know in winter roads are going to be icy and snowy and um but, you know there's a lot more use of you know snow tires and just sand for traction and um different ways of providing traction without sort of clearing that ice um, so that's you know one approach is just shifting how we view winter and driving um, the other approach is looking for engineering solutions like can we clear roads more effectively um, without using so much salt? There's no, you know, panacea to that question. There's um, the shift we're seeing right now is the shift from rock salt to liquid brine application, and so that switch is still using salt. It's the exact same salt, It's just being applied as a liquid instead of a solid. And in doing that, you save a lot of salt. So you just, it's more effective. It's a more effective means of deicing, and so you're uh, you just end up using a lot less salt. There's also, further down the road, potentially some engineering um, uh, innovations, things like solar-heated roads, perhaps, permeable pavement, where if you get wa- water, can drain through the asphalt. It's not going to pond and ice. Um, and so, you know, I think looking to the future, we have to think both of the engineering approaches and also thinking about, you know, the question of do we need to remove salt or do we need to remove snow, you know, from all, page surfaces.
2: Earlier this week, it was reported that even the Great Lakes have been experiencing this issue. What does the future of Wisconsin's lakes look like if we continue going at this pace?
5: So, so far, most urban lakes, we see an increase in salinity. Um, And as I said, that's a balance between how much salt is coming in and how quickly those lakes can flush that downstream. You know, what that's going to take to change that is to lessen our inputs. Um, As you said, the Great Lakes, you know, we did a research study where we, uh, one of my colleagues drove around Lake Michigan and sampled every river going into the lake and saw that, you know, on an annual basis, there's a million metric tons of salt that are going into Lake Michigan. Lake Michigan is so big that it can kind of buffer that, um, and so the concentrations are still pretty low. Uh, but it's still worrisome, I and mean, we use a lot of these uh, freshwater supplies as drinking for drinking water. Um, and just like freshwater organisms don't want to be living in a saline environment, we as humans don't want to be drinking water that tastes salty. Um, and so I think you know now is the time to really focus on changing some of our um, you know the ways the way we let salt enter the environment. Um, to really protect those water supplies, because it's a lot more cost effective now to uh, prevent salt being put into lakes and rivers than it is to remove it, um, you know, once we once we have to do that.
2: I wanted to ask you on that point, is there a, once the lakes get salt in them, is there a solution to getting the salt out of the lakes?
6: Sure. So,
5: in all practicality, no, um, but it will, it stays dissolved, so it will flush downstream. It's not like other contaminants that might stay, um, you know, locked up in the food chain or locked up in sediments. It will just stay dissolved in the water, so it can be flushed out. So that's a really good thing. Um, that just takes time. Um, the, you know, the one end of the spectrum is something like desalinization where you can remove salt from water. Um, it just takes a lot of energy. And that is very cost prohibitive. So, um, you know, we've always sort of taken our freshwater resources for granted here. Um, And it's, you know, they're relatively cheap to use and there's lots of them. uh, But we really want to make sure they stay fresh so we don't have to, you know, have this extra burden of uh, trying to remove soil from water.
2: Well, Hillary, that's all the questions that I have for you. Do you have any final thoughts on the matter that you'd like to share?
5: No, I mean, it's I'm sure uh, people in southern Wisconsin Uh, Some people are dying for snow, but I think uh, the roads department is pretty happy. They haven't had to be been out salting yet.
2: (laughs) I'm sure they have been happy with that. (laughs) I've been speaking with Hillary Dugan, assistant professor at the Center of Limnology at UW-Madison. Hillary,
1: thank you once again for speaking with me today.
5: Anytime, and uh, have a happy holiday, Nate.
1: And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Please stay with us. We've got lots more stories coming up.
0: We'll talk about how to request public records from law enforcement, how to boost Wisconsin, how funds to boost Wisconsin roadways can be abused. And we'll take a look at a special kind of artificial tree with Radio Chipstone.
1: But first, we'll take a quick break, check in on some world headlines, and we'll be right back. is now 633 and you're listening to the local news on wort i'm your host marcus slayton here with stacy harbaugh thanks for joining us
0: every other thursday feature contributor jonah chester sits down with tom kamenik president of the wisconsin transparency project to discuss open records and open government for a segment we call transparency talk on this archival edition how to request police records Now, a quick note that this conversation isn't specific legal advice, so please seek an attorney's assistance if you have difficulty with open records or open government.
3: It is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line, as is tradition, by our open government wizard himself, Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how you holding up this week?
7: Jonah, I'm holding good. The sun's shining both outside and on government. So that's where we want to be.
3: That is exactly where we want to be. And I'm really excited for today's uh, today's feature idea because I actually came up with this one. We're talking about records from law enforcement agencies. Now, we here at the WORT News Team, file a lot of, of public information requests from uh, the Madison Police Department amongst other police organizations. So this is something I have a little bit of experience in, and I'm looking forward to diving in and letting people know how they can get uh, information they want from your local police agencies. Let's, let's go ahead and dive right in. Walk me through some of the most common records that people are typically interested in when it comes to law enforcement and criminal justice.
7: Yeah, let's start at the local level with your police departments. Every city village has one, towns have them. We're also talking about sheriff's departments here too. And the categories of records kind of break down into two different sections. One is records that relate to individual incidents. So something bad happens, the cops are called and there's a report made about it. So what kind of records are involved there? Well, if it's a traffic report, car crash of some kind, There is a whole set of laws that deal with uniform traffic reports and they are released quickly and cheaply. They're very easy to get. Uh, The vast majority of requests to police departments are actually for those, although a lot of those come from personal injury attorneys looking to send out mailers to people to hire their services. But if it's not a traffic report of some kind, then what you're probably looking for are the incident reports. Different police departments can have different names for this. Sometimes they're computerized uh, reports, sometimes they're not. But ask for incident reports from the incident you're interested in. And then finally, for individual incidents, now are the days you might be interested in some body cam footage. That has become one of the quickest growing categories of record requests. And custodians around the state, especially in the bigger cities, are reporting that it's taking up a large amount of of their time spent on records because when they produce body cam footage, somebody has to watch the whole thing every minute of it to see if there's anything that needs to be redacted. And this isn't a written record where you can kind of scan through quickly through a page and look for things that jump out that that wouldn't be allowed. Uh, Somebody literally has to watch everything. So what I recommend people do if they're interested in body cam footage to get them quicker and also to not bog down the, the the system for other people making requests, try to make your request as narrow as you can, uh, limited to the, the, the period of time that you're most interested in and and be willing to work with custodians if they come back asking if there's something a particular portion of an incident you're most interested in seeing.
3: So those were sort of specific cases, but you can request broader information from police organizations and police departments,
7: correct? Yeah, you might be interested to start with, with policies. What is the police department's policies on use of force? Most of them have them. Uh, by law now, if they're using body cams, they have to have uh, policies governing the use of when they're turned on, when they're turned off, how long they're kept, that sort of thing. So look for policies. People are often interested in personnel records of individual police officers. It's been in the news recently, thanks to a report from the Wisconsin Examiner about um, trouble police officers who bounce around between different police departments and have long records of problems, but they keep getting hired. Generally speaking, routine personnel records are not available. So this is things like performance reviews and qualification exams, things like that you might not be able to get in most circumstances. But whenever there's an investigation into wrongdoing or potential wrongdoing, those records typically must be released. They can often be redacted. But if you ever get a denial that just says, these are investigation records, we're not gonna turn over any of them, that's a problem. Go talk to somebody. You might also wanna know about reports that a police department is putting out. There might be reports on types of crimes and crime trends, broad reports about complaints against police or summaries of uses of force. And your know, budgets and spending items fall into this category too. Those kind of are items of interest for all types of government entities. And finally, another request I see a lot of is communications. You can request communication Perhaps internally, although some of those are harder to get, but uh, anytime they are communicating with external people or agencies, uh, those records are much more able to be disclosed.
3: Now, let's look at one of the other wings of the law enforcement system, and that is jails and prisons. Now, what information can I get from jails and prisons, which we should mention, you know, jails are run largely at a county level and prisons, obviously, are through the Department of Corrections, which is the state of Wisconsin.
7: Yeah, and there are a lot more limitations in the incarceration sphere to talk about and it'd take forever to go through them, but generally speaking, uh, particularly if inmates themselves are making requests or there's records that involve or raise safety concerns, there's a lot more types and kinds of records that can be withheld. So it's harder to get things like personnel information about individual corrections officers, internal incident reports, or internal communications. Doesn't mean you can't try, but you should expect some resistance in those realms. But on other things like broad policies and uh, broader reports and external communications, those get turned over just about the same as any other custodian of records would do.
3: All right. We have unfortunately run out of time for this week's episode, for which I've been joined on the other end of the line, as always, by our open government wizard, Tom Kamenik. Tom, thanks so much for joining me this week.
7: Thanks, Jenna. And remember, if you don't ask, you won't know.
3: The
1: General Transportation Aids Program, or GTA, helps local governments to receive state funds to offset the cost of road construction and traffic operations. To learn more about this program, 8 O'Clock Buzz host Brian Standing spoke with Jason Stein, the research director for the Wisconsin Policy Forum.
8: Jason Stein is the research director for the Wisconsin Policy Forum, and he joins us once again. Jason, welcome back to the 8 O'Clock Bus. Thanks very much for having me. So let's talk a little bit about how it distributes funding. Uh, under what circumstances would a community get state funding for transportation under the GTA program?
6: There's basically two formulas, Brian, and the state gives communities whichever formula is the largest amount so one is simply you look at all their gta eligible roads however many miles there are whether the roads are two lane or six lane they get a certain payment per mile it's about twenty six hundred dollars that's the first formula second looks at their spending on certain eligible costs and that includes road maintenance road construction uh, sidewalks things like that in addition um some other costs like lighting storm sewers and police are, are factored into the equation as well. So whichever mileage or their spending on roads, whichever one gives them the most money, that's what gives them their GTA payment. Tell me,
8: like a, a little bit about what, you, where this money ends up going. Who ends up benefiting from the current formula, and who ends up losing?
6: You can look at it two ways. Certainly, larger communities get larger payments per mile because they have roads with with more lanes, with more amenities, with with lighting, with storm sewers, all of that. So they get larger payments per mile. On the other hand, some of the smallest towns in the state, they actually get um, more of their costs covered. So your, your average city in Wisconsin gets less than 16% of its road-related costs covered by the GTA program, whereas... Uh, the average town in Wisconsin gets about 36 percent of its its costs covered because there's just more um, payment that comes into them through the payment per mile program, and and one problem with that is there's not really an incentive to spend on roads if you're getting paid through the the payment per mile program because. Again, you'll get the same amount, whatever you spend, for, you'll get the same amount from the state. And what we have seen over the past generation is that the states put more money into the mileage payment portion of the program than into the rest. So you've seen more and more communities switch to the mileage program. And that may all sound complicated, but the sort of bottom line is it removes at least one incentive for those communities to spend on maintaining and and building good roads.
8: Well, what's interesting to me about this is that there's no assessment of traffic demand or demand for, you know, new or maintained traffic infrastructure. So if you've got an empty road that nobody ever drives on, but it covers up a lot of miles, you get you get paid for it regardless of whether If, you know, if it's just a road to nowhere, right?
6: Yeah. And I mean, there's really two things You're, you're getting, you can get paid really, even if you're not spending what you need to spend to keep up your roads, let alone build new ones. And there's also, you know, no assessment of your, your actual needs. So you can also have communities that. They're getting paid on the the spending formula, and they're spending a lot on their roads, but they don't necessarily need to spend that much. And again, they may be spending a lot in some cases on law enforcement and not on their roads, and maybe more than they need to on law enforcement. So, so that's one issue. We did look at neighboring states uh, around us, and we found that although they all use – to some degree, mileage as well to distribute their road aids. They also use a number of other factors. So, all the other states except Wisconsin use a community's population to help determine their road payment, their local road aid payment. Several states, Illinois, Michigan, and Minnesota, use registered vehicles or fees. And, you know, both population and registered vehicles can speak to, you know, what sort of traffic needs a community's having and then Minnesota actually has created a pretty elaborate formula to assess a community's actual need to spend money on its roads and as as part of this study which was done with the University of Milwaukee Institute on Physical Infrastructure and Transportation we also created a very simple a needs calculation that that could be used as as just an example of how you could figure out a community's actual needs for road maintenance and construction, and not simply award it based on the number of miles they have or what they spent in the past, which may not reflect really what their, their needs are.
8: And what are the factors that go into that type of calculation? If you were going to calculate a need, a transportation need for a particular community, what are you looking at?
6: I mean, you know, there really is a practice that the state has developed within the spending formula for looking at road uh, maintenance and well, cer- certain other factors like, again, we talked about law enforcement, we talked about lighting, Storm sewers and that sort of thing. So you could continue to use that to some degree because there's, you know, communities spend more uniformly in those areas. But then all communities have in Wisconsin have to report on the condition and nature of their roads to the state already. And that system, which is maintained by the State Department of Transportation, that system could be used to, you know, calculate for road. You know, is it a a major thoroughfare or a small rural road? You know, what what are the sort of amenities it has on it and what would it cost over the life cycle of the road to maintain and do the necessary reconstruction that that road is going to be called is going to be called for for that road, you know, over, say, a period such as 30 years. And then, you know, over time, you could set up your system so that the community is getting you know, the state's share of that maintenance and reconstruction through the through the state road aid system and, you know, over time is able to put in the investment that it needs to put in. All right.
8: Jason Stein, Research Director of the Wisconsin Policy Forum. Uh, thank you for joining us. The new report is called Two-Way Street, and you can read the entire report at WisconsinPolicyForum.org. Jason, thank you for joining us.
6: Oh, my pleasure. Really, big thank you for having
8: me.
0: It's 6.47 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Manitowoc was once known as the aluminum capital of the world when the Aluminum Specialty Company released the very first Evergleam tree. They might have gone a little bit out of style, but the city still proudly displays the pink and silver trees at the Manitowoc Public Library. Theron Georges is the author of The Evergleam Book, 60th Anniversary Deluxe Edition. And published in 2019, Georges' book is a mixture of photographs, original advertisements, and cataloged information. In this archival edition of Radio Chipstone, Georges tells contributor Jennifer Fields that his love for the far-out shiny atomic space trees started right here on Earth.
4: We have to go back to my childhood in the nineteen seventies and early nineteen eighties, and my parents who are deceased, and I say this in the really in a loving way, sometimes we're a little bit behind the times, at least I felt so as a teenager, they still have their original aluminum Christmas tree, which we have captured in photographs from the 1960s, but they still had it in the 1970s and early 80s, and then it kind of disappeared. Some of my very happiest memories are of that aluminum Christmas tree in my childhood. It was probably uh, thrown out with the trash at some point because nobody in my family has it now. I guess the memory and the attempt to recapture my childhood and that nostalgia was really the beginning of the Evergreen book. And then in a second sense, I remember in 2004, when I had already started to rekindle my interest in aluminum Christmas trees, of course, I bought the now very famous book by John Shimon and Julie Lindemann, which is called Seasons Gleamings. It's a pictorial essay, more than a written word essay, about aluminum Christmas trees and portraits. I've actually told John this since we're now friends, but I said I regretted that I didn't do that book.
9: It's one thing to have a love for these trees and have that pull towards nostalgia, but it's another thing to recreate an entire catalog.
4: As a collector, I admit I look every day on the online auction sites for that gem that I don't yet have in my collection. But in so doing, it amazes me how frequently I come across an advertisement or a listing for an aluminum Christmas tree,
0: which is
4: to no fault of the seller really in error. Just completely an error, a complete misrepresentation of what the person is actually selling. That doesn't hurt the seller terribly, but when the buyer receives an object which was described one way and they receive something completely different, it's another story. And there certainly is a need for a reference book that, at least insofar as Evergreens is concerned, Gives you the tools, gives you the know, gives you the technical language to intelligently discuss, buy, sell, trade, and talk about aluminum Christmas trees.
9: Theron, it's interesting that you say that because I had to decide who I was as, as somebody who wanted the tree. Am I someone who wanted an actual Evergleam in my home or am I someone who just wants... Uh, aluminum tree that may or may not be an original, maybe Frankenstein together from a number of parts could be a retro recreation from some shop somewhere. So I guess in my mind it's the condition of the collector. You have to decide if you're a collector who wants an authentic tree or if you're a collector who just wants something gleaming and shining in their house.
4: Just this week in December of 2020 all historical sales records were broken when an 8 foot 94 branch pink Evergleam aluminum Christmas tree sold for $5,000 on eBay.
9: You can't see me but my my chin is on the floor because I'm not even going to lie right now Farron, if I was going to get one I want a pink one. (laughs) I want that pink tree.
4: If the buyer had had the Evergreen book, and maybe they do, I don't know who that buyer is, and it doesn't matter, and I hope they'll be very happy with their acquisition, but if they had my book, they would understand that the version of the tree they bought was really a standard pink aluminum Christmas tree as opposed to a deluxe pink aluminum Christmas tree. The difference being... That the standard version have the lesser number of branches for a given height, whereas the deluxe version has more branches for a given height. In the case of this pink aluminum Christmas tree, which was eight feet tall, it had 94 branches. That's considered a standard pink aluminum Christmas tree. The holy grail, if you want an eight foot tree, would be item 491. Eight, which would have had 121 or 124 branches it doesn't matter the person who bought that tree I'm sure is going to be thrilled with what they got and for sure they do have a, a wonderful prize but it would be the type of collector or the type of person with keen interest and knowledge who would have understood the difference between the two models and what was actually being sold and bought on eBay this week.
9: Have you found new Evergleam or Evergleam type products or related products since writing this book?
4: There is an official um, company advertisement back from the 1960s for a tree which is known as the silver spruce. It's unique because it has downward swept branches as opposed to the typical upward-swept branches that we're all familiar with. Yet, nobody that we know of has one in a private collection anywhere in the world. So we have to think, if the aluminum specialty company spent enough time and enough money to build at least one of them, to have it professionally photographed, and then to have their designer place it on a catalog page from the early 1960s, where are they? Where did it go? Was it a project that got scrapped for one reason or another? Or is one waiting to be discovered in a basement or forgotten attic somewhere in the upper Midwest, maybe even close to home in Manitowoc, Wisconsin? But the possibility that one is waiting to be discovered makes the collecting so interesting. And and it just keeps me involved and engaged year-round, hoping that we find the the elusive and the mysterious Silver Spruce.
9: It's such, I don't know, it's such a, a nod to a time period where we, you know stupidly thought we knew everything, but we were exploring space, and we were, you know, it was a time of social unrest, of political unrest, but you had this sort of gleaming beacon that came out of it, and came out of it from Manitowoc, Wisconsin, of all places. I would not think of, especially now, I would not think of Wisconsin as a beacon for hope in the 60s.
4: As we speak, I'm looking at photographs from my personal collection. On the one hand, I'm looking at a pair of lovely African-American ladies, um, probably in their late teens, early 20s. I purchased this photograph from a family in Detroit. They have an aluminum Christmas tree. But in addition to the aluminum Christmas tree, I'm looking at their clothes. I'm looking at their jewelry. I'm looking at their hair. I'm looking at their furniture, their plants. I'm looking at their drapes. I go to the next photograph, and these are all um, young men from Fort Worth. Um, there's <laughs> there's nothing terribly eccentric about them. They're they're from middle class, largely white families. Um, they've received a gun for Christmas. They have an aluminum Christmas tree in the back. One of them has probably a blazer from some highfalutin private school somewhere. And then I go to the next photograph and I see a child who's probably seven, eight years old. Of course, he has the very finest aluminum Christmas tree in the background with a halo board and a diorama, and he's got steber orb lights. But he's just received an accordion on Christmas morning, which he has strapped on, and he's playing it for his mother and father, presumably. This would never occur in Texas. But what ties all of these things together, obviously, is the aluminum Christmas tree. Yet the people who have them come from so very many diverse backgrounds, um, social status. Um, Some of them appear to possibly, you know, be lower middle class, maybe not well to do. Um, Others uh, appear to be from very affluent families. But it fascinates me how the aluminum Christmas tree transcends all of those things during the Christmas time in the early 1960s. It's absolutely fascinating.
9: For WORT, I'm Jennifer Fields.
1: And that's a wrap for WORT's Live Local News at Six. Special thanks to feature contributors Jonathan Fields, Brian Standing, and Jonah Chester of the Wisconsin News Connection. Dylan Brogan in- engineered this show. Nate Wiggy, Howe produced this newscast. And Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slate.
0: And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. As a special note, the 6 p.m. local news will be off next week. But stay tuned, though, for some handcrafted specials from our news department. Up next is a live edition of Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night. Mm-hmm.